If they don't feel like you care about them, you might as well just be talking to a wall. Your class might as well not happen or exist. I think that's a tall order to make an inherently racist institution anti-racist. We as educators absolutely need to be doing our own work and we need to be holding space for educators around how do I do work to be actively anti-racist. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. I just completed my 16th year in the classroom. And this, of course, is all the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to the world of education. If you're joining us for the very first time, welcome to our show. We hope you appreciate and enjoy what you see and what you hear. And um, if you like what you see, go ahead and give us that thumbs up and hit subscribe so that you don't miss out on any of our future episodes. Now, Jeff, um, you know, I know this is uh, season three and this is the 24th episode of season three, I believe. But do you know that since we first began this journey of all of the above, this now is our 50th full episode. Wow, you know, man, well, I I did not know. I wasn't I wasn't <laughs> sure. I'm glad I'm glad one of us is wow. aware. And uh, you know, it just so it just wow. so happens that I that I came prepared with my with my uh, 399 uh, Ralph's special cupcake. Uh, <laughs> Nice. Oh, and I, and, I, and I blew it out there. Let me let me put it back on. <laughs> For folks listening, he is holding up a very um, lovely Ralph's cupcake that has a candle on it that says 50 for our 50th episode. And um, it's it, it looks like it's worth all of three dollars and ninety nine cents. That, that yeah, cupcake. you know, there was only one kind of candles that had a number five. So on our uh, very robust all the above budget, this is. This is what we got, man. But it's red velvet, you know. Uh, nice. It should be delicious. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Looks great. Looks great. And uh, congrats to both of us, I guess, for making it to episode number fifty. But more than anything, I want to say shout out to all the all the listeners and all the viewers who've been with us yes. since the beginning. Of course, we're still still growing and we're still running a, a pretty small operation, especially now that we're not in the official TV studio with our student helpers because of the, the COVID crisis and all of that. But um, this has been a great journey and I've fully enjoyed it. And that means if you are listening or if you are watching, there are 49 other full episodes for you to catch up on if you are new to our show. And we've covered such a wide range of topics and had such a, a marvelous a collection of guests over these over these last three seasons. So definitely go to aotashow.com to catch up on all of that. But for this 50th episode, Jeff, what is on the agenda? Well, Manuel, we got a good one today, and it's a special one, as you noted. So to help celebrate our 50th episode ever, uh, we are bringing on three of really just our favorite guests from over the years. Um, we have one of our very first guests ever, Alyssa Solis, who is a science teacher, going to be joining us again. We have um, our senior middle school correspondent. You've seen her before. We know and love her, uh, Genevieve DuBose. And then, of course, we have uh, someone who made a real mark on our show um, 
not uh, earlier this season, but the, the previous season, Jamam Taylor, um, trauma educator, who's going to be back with us. So um, we're going to talk to these three incredible, powerful guests, three amazing women working um, in education and in fields related to education uh, to talk about kind of the end of the school year and the political moment in which we're living and what this means for school um, heading into the future. So stick around. You definitely don't want to miss it. Dope. Can't wait for those conversations. But at first, we have our Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for the Do Now. Let's take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we doing the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, you know, it is the end of the school year pretty much across the country. I, you know, I know some of my, uh, my people in New York City might, might still have a couple days left uh, on the year by the time this episode drops. But we're basically at the school, end of the school year everywhere. And, you know, I know your favorite part about school under distance learning is issuing grades. So we got a report card, man. We're going to give out some grades today. Yeah, you know I'm team all A's, but I think for this report card today, I don't know if we're going to have all A's. Let's, let's take a yeah, look. Yeah, we'll, so. we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. All right, Jeff. So our first grade for today is a C. Oh, okay. I mean, you know, I guess that's the, uh, the good old college try or something like that, they say. Yeah, something like that. But in this case, the C stands for conversion therapy. Oh. Okay. Yeah, yeah, ugh, exactly. This story actually is is worthy of an F, but that C is for conversion therapy. So this story we um, got from the Huffington Post by uh, some reporting done by Rebecca Klein. And in her story, Klein profiles the experience of 16-year-old high school sophomore Megan Mishkin, who is a student at Calvary Christian Academy in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, who says she was pressured into receiving conversion therapy after the school became aware of her sexual orientation. Now, the Human Rights Campaign, which is a leading LGBTQ plus civil rights group, defines conversion therapy as, quote, a range of dangerous and discredited practices that falsely claim to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity or expression. Now, Megan Michigan's story is, is bad enough, but what makes the story even worse is that Calvary Christian Academy received just over $3 million in public funding last year through a variety of state voucher and tax credit programs. In fact, Rebecca Klein's story shows that nearly a dozen religious schools have received taxpayer money while simultaneously encouraging conversion therapy. In total, the article cites about $8 million of public funds that have gone to religious schools that have conversion therapy as a practice. Now, Jeff, how surprised are you that religious schools are receiving public dollars, especially in cases where these religious schools are pressuring students into conversion therapy? You know, I, I probably should be surprised, but I'm not. And I think you know why, because our secretary of education, who is the worst secretary of education we have ever had in the United States, continues to weaponize the office of secretary of education against the people of the United States and against the institution of school. And, you know, in, in fairness to her, she did not invent 
vouchers to, you know, to private schools, right? These have been around for quite some time now. Um, and it is, it, I think it's baked into the equation. If we're giving money to private religious schools, we are going to be taxpayer subsidizing the harmful things that some of those schools choose to do, which includes, in, in large part, very uh, aggressively hateful actions towards, uh, in particular, our LGBTQ uh, community. And so to see this is like on a personal level, just really disheartening. I mean, conversion therapy is not only like completely debunked, uh, you know, professionally and ethically as something that that is even real science, right? Um, it's just hate masked as as therapy and as science, um, but is also something that I think you know we've seen data uh, showing very harmful, prolonged negative side effects, right? Of increased likelihood of folks who've experienced that type of so-called counseling or conversion therapy, uh, you know, increased likelihood of them committing suicide, increased rates of depression, increased rates of homelessness, all kinds of things that are like deep negative social outcomes that uh, of course we, we, <laughs> we don't wanna see for any aspect of our society, let alone folks who are already for many reasons, some of the most marginalized people in our society. So um, you know, to see this, it's like infuriating on a personal level because I pay my taxes every year and to know that you know, some of my tax dollars are going to fund schools like this. And it's, you know, the article focuses on this cavalry uh, school in Florida, but um, we, I, I encourage folks to click on the article because at the bottom they have a list of a whole bunch of schools across the country. And it's not just in the South. It's not just in, you know, sort of rural areas, right? Um, places that are doing this. And this is deeply, deeply harmful to young people. And, um, you know, especially, uh, you know, this is Pride Month, right? So especially this type of thing hitting the news at a time when Betsy DeVos is, is pushing to expand this sort of funding as a part of the coronavirus, you know, so-called relief efforts that are coming out of, uh, out of the federal government right now. It's just, it's just disgusting in the worst way, Manuel. Yeah, really, really, truly is. And the student that was profiled in the story, Megan Michigan, she just completed her junior year at NYU. So um, to be fair, the, the, the high school that she attended, Calvary Christian Academy, they dispute that the, the situation happened the way that she describes. But others um, back up her, her side of the story in saying that she was really pressured into getting this type of conversion therapy after the school became aware of her sexual orientation. And also, I mean, let's be honest, if she were at a public school, her although the public school wouldn't be pressuring her into conversion therapy, it's not like things are so great for our LGBTQ plus students in, in public schools either when it comes to bullying and, and, and transphobia and homophobia. Um, but to think that a religious school is receiving taxpayer funds to push this sort of stuff is just ridiculous. I mean, if that's your religious viewpoint, fine, but taxpayer dollars should not be going to that, especially in a situation where schools are so terribly under-resourced and underfunded right now. Like, it's not like we have like a surplus of funds and it's like, okay, well, public schools don't need the, this extra money. Let's, let's send it somewhere else. No. So this is just, um, it's a terrible story. And um, to know that Betsy is, is involved in it in the sense of her wanting to increase support for religious schools is, is no surprise. And of course, anybody that's been with us since episode one knows that Betsy DeVos has been our, our biggest hater, really. And we suspect that she is the one who 
who was behind most of the the thumbs downs that the thumb downs that we get on on YouTube. We get about one per video, and we're pretty sure it's her. So um, yeah, man, trash story. Um, C for conversion therapy, but legitimately an F. What's the next grade that we have on the report card for today? All right, man. Well, next up we have an A. Yeah, team all A's. Let's do it. Give them all A's, man. <laughs> I thought you would appreciate that, man. Uh, you know, it's very, it's fitting with uh, the the moments um, we are in right now. But this A in particular, Manuel, stands for affirmative action. So really, it's two A's, I guess, when you think about it. Um, nice. So yeah, we got some fascinating news about the issue of affirmative action coming out of the state of California. So let's get into it here. Um, this is based on some reporting, uh, some really good reporting that was done um, by Hannah Wiley in the Sacramento Bee and also by John Myers uh, from the LA Times. And in a 58 to 9 initial vote, uh, Assemblywoman Shirley Weber, who's a Democrat from San Diego, secured the necessary two-thirds majority approval needed to send uh, a, um, Assembly Constitutional Amendment, ACA 5, uh, from the California State Assembly to the State Senate, where it must be approved by June 25th in order to appear on the November 3rd statewide ballot. Now, ACA 5, if you haven't heard about it, would repeal the provisions of the infamous 1996 ballot measure, also known as Prop 209, which prohibited state institutions from granting preferential treatment based on race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin. Um, this was essentially the ballot measure in California that did away with affirmative action. Um, and uh, advocates of this change say it would once again allow affirmative action in things like hiring, contracting, and in college admissions. Now, that may sound great, in particular in the sort of, you know, hashtag Black Lives Matter moment that we are all living through, but the bill is not without its detractors. Um, said uh, Assemblyman Evan Lowe, uh, who is a Democrat from Campbell, California, um, it does not come without peril. Um, he supported the bill, but expressed concern that his office had received 99 calls in support from constituents and more than 3,000 in opposition, mainly from the Asian American community. Um, now, there's a lot of uh, kind of controversy around that issue because um, many members of the Asian American community have come out in favor of the, uh, this uh, statewide ballot measure and also note that, of course, the Asian American community is huge and diverse and not all folks uh, within that community are well represented or overrepresented uh, in our state colleges and universities, even though as a sort of umbrella category, Asian Americans are overrepresented, um, particularly on UC campuses. So, Manuel, um, fascinating topic. You, I know, as sort of a, a college student, experienced the post-ending of affirmative action era uh, in your time as a student. So I'm very curious to get to your thoughts about this development. Yeah, so this is definitely a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I remember it like it was yesterday when Prop 209 was not, I mean, the campaign for it. I remember the commercials on TV for Prop 209 and they were using images of Martin Luther King and, and his dream that folks will be um, judged by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. And, and just the way Prop 209 was marketed it really had people thinking, I guess, that it was a, a measure that would help 
stop racial discrimination, but what it actually was was a measure that was aimed at dismantling affirmative action. And I was one of the first, oh, I was a member of the first class of students in the UC system, myself at UCLA, who were there post Prop 209. Now, I have an older sister who went to UCLA and I remember visiting her and it was such a diverse, lovely community and that's why I fell in love with UCLA and wanted to go there myself. When I got there, it was a very different place. I remember being in freshman orientation. My particular orientation group was about 300 students and it was me and one other black guy and that was it out of that whole big group. It just was not the lovely, diverse place that I remembered visiting. And my whole college experience, I mean, I think I talked about this in our episode on, on origin stories like that, um, just the, the, the absolute lack of, of seeing folks who, who came from similar backgrounds as, as I did when I entered you know, UCLA, a public university in a very diverse city, in a very diverse state. Um, you know, that had everything to do with my decision to become a teacher. And I am so thrilled that finally something is being done about the harmful effects of Prop 209. We just discussed uh, recently on this show, all those statements coming out from schools and districts and corporations about their their uh, support for fighting against injustice and systemic racism. Some of them use that phrase, systemic racism. And, and so often people talk about it without being able to name any particular systems. Well, if you believe that we need to dismantle systemic racism, there are really only two options. We either take apart the system that exists today, we burn it all down and, and, and take it apart and build something new, which a lot of people think is too radical and asking for too much. Or we try to alleviate the harm of systemic racism on the back end by helping out groups from, from marginalized backgrounds that have been systemically oppressed and helping give them the extra support to have these opportunities in higher ed and in the workplace so that hopefully we could um, counter the negative effects of systemic racism. So we're either burning down the system or we're coming up with ways to counteract the damage done by the system. If you don't want to counteract it with something like affirmative action and you don't want to take it apart and dismantle it because because that's just too radical and too too uh, too much. Then, like, what the hell are you doing? Like, what is what what do your calls for justice and dismantling racism? What do they even mean at this point? And, I'm, and Jeff, I'm glad yeah. you pointed out that Asian Americans are are not a monolithic group. There are several groups within the Asian American umbrella that are not prospering in California California schools. And when we talk about Cambodian folks, when we talk about our Vietnamese brothers and sisters, when we talk about Pacific Islanders. So this whole notion of like Asian Americans being so successful and this is going to get in their way. It's like, wait, hold up. Which Asian Americans are, are you talking about? Because there are many groups that are just completely just not included in that conversation. And we got to do more for those groups as well. So I'm glad that we are getting back to the discussion of Prop 209 and whether or not it's right for California. Yeah, Manuel, and I, I'm going to actually push even one step further than what you just said, because, you know, I was a high school student slash college student, at, you know, at the same time uh, as you. And I grew up in Minnesota. And I remember at that time hearing about the sort of undoing of affirmative action in California. You know, that made national news. And I knew from, you know, thousands of miles away that this was not about the sort of, um 
you know, veneer of fake Kingian philosophy that conservatives have put upon this debate of judging people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin, that this was a weaponizing of King's message to institute or reinstitute oh, yeah. a very clearly white supremacist agenda, right? And the, the only thing that is kind of ironically funny about this is in their attempt to, <laughs> to sort of reinstitute like legalized white supremacy in these aspects of, of public life in California, white folks quickly found out that they were actually being out meritocracied by, by Asians in this state. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, kind of lost at their own game in, in some ways, if you think about it. Now, um, putting that aside for a second, you know, I think this is this move is a, is a perfect encapsulation of what lots of people across this country are reading about. Because Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, has been like number one or number two on Amazon for the last month or whatever now that people have been in the streets. So I know folks out there reading about it. And when he talks about this issue of things being not racist, right, and uh, versus anti-racist, Prop 209 is one of those not racist sorts of things, right? It has this veneer of like, oh, we're gonna be neutral and colorblind and create a colorblind society. When in fact, we all know what it's doing is institutionalizing the inequities that we know are present, right? We can't have a, uh, a fair competition when certain folks are hoarding all the resources, right? So the reality is we need anti-racist policies. And I'm not saying that, you know, affirmative action in and of itself is the answer to that, but it's certainly a step in an anti-racist direction, right, is to, to make sure that our colleges and universities, our public contracts look like the people um, and the communities of this state and not like a pre-selected set of folks who are already doing the best in that equation. Yeah, absolutely. Everything you said there. And, you know, if this ACA 5 does make it to the ballot for California voters in November, hopefully we'll revisit that whole topic of affirmative action um, on all the above in an in a episode sometime over the summer and the fall. Um, and if you are listening to this and you're like, huh, I want to I want to learn more about the student of color experience in predominantly white institutions. Good for you. We have an episode on that that we recently did with Dr. Uh, Richard Reddick of the University of Texas. If you're thinking like, oh, I want to learn more about just the, the various ways that schools um, embed these systemic racist ideas and, and policies, we have about 49 episodes that touch on that <laughs> in one way or another. Indeed. So dig through the crates, AOTAshow.com, and uh, get your learn on if you are new to our show. All right, but up next, we have our seminar for today. We're going to be uh, having conversations with three of our favorite guests from over, these, uh, over the course of these 50 episodes about the various complexities of how and when we're going to go back to schools this fall, considering the pandemic and social uprisings and, and all that's happening in the world. All right, so stay tuned. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. And we are super excited to have with us three incredible guests today. Uh, we're gonna be doing just a, a bit of a walk down memory lane with some of our favorite guests. Uh, from over the course of our three years uh, producing all the above and our 50 full-length episodes, all of which are available to you anytime at aotashow.com. And to start us off on today's conversation is a person you've seen before, you know her, you love her. She is our senior middle school correspondent, Genevieve DuBose. Welcome back to the show, Genevieve. It's good to see you. 
It's so wonderful to see you all, and I'm sad to not be in the studio with you. Well, you know, the the drawback of the whole quarantine thing is we don't get to actually share some space and share the love in person, but the benefit is we get to have all kinds of amazing people who now have nothing to do on a Saturday so, <laughs> so they can come join us on the show. So, you know, there are trade-offs here. Uh, but it's great to have you back, Genevieve. Uh, appreciate your... Um, always valuable contributions to our discussion on the show and uh, loving that t-shirt you got there. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe you could show everybody, uh, you know, the, the war against injustice. Love it. Right. T-shirt game always on point. Always oh, yeah. on point. Yes. Yes. Yeah. All right, Genevieve. So, you know, as our senior middle school correspondent, you obviously bring a wealth of knowledge and experience to the table and have been very much on the front lines of what has been happening in our schools over the last few months where everything just kind of got turned upside down, right? Um, and this year has just been a lot for everyone, for teachers, for principals, for coaches like yourself, for all kinds of people, right? For parents at home. So wonder if you could share some insight about, you know, now that the year has kind of come to an end, uh, you know, what did we learn from this? What are the implications we should be thinking about going forward? Yeah, I have so many takeaways from this time. Um, and one of the largest ones for me has been that just this reminder that education is a tool for social justice, for equity and for dismantling racism. And even though our system was not set up uh, for those things to happen, right? The education system actually perpetuates all of those things. This time has really made it clear to me that this is our role. And I have seen uh, through you know work, my work with teachers and students, through listening to what students have to say, um, in response to what's happening in terms of the coronavirus and also in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, kids need to feel connected to what they're learning. And that has been, I've known that, we've all known that, but this, this has been so present uh, in this time. Um, also just that we, we have to do better by our kids, right? We have to do better by our students and by our families and by ourselves. And so this, this idea that like race and racism are very taboo subjects. I mean, the, the conversations that students and teachers and colleagues are having right now has been uh, like, has been mind blowing to me, right? That we, we actually like, we're giving students a text about systemic racism and looking at how racism perpetuates, is perpetuated through the systems in our country. And so, if that was a text that we had offered last year, we probably would have gotten a lot of pushback or questions around like, well, do kids really need to read about this? And so for me, just one of my biggest takeaways has been like, we have to continue this work that students need to feel connected to what they're learning and they need to actually find value in it. And if I'm learning something that doesn't uh, connect to my life or feel applicable, I'm not gonna do it, right? And so it reminds me so much of that James Baldwin quote around like the paradox of education being, you know, that like, that's when I, I can't name it exactly, but that's when you actually start to examine, um, you learn when you're learning and then you actually start to examine the society that you're living in. That's what we want students to do. So for me, in the midst of everything that's been happening, that's been my biggest takeaway of just that we have to ensure that learning is, is we're giving students tools to actually make change.
Nice. Now, Genevieve, you have a wealth of experience in education, both in and out of the classroom. And we're wondering, as somebody who's who's really been in the game for a long time, um, you know, distance learning, that specifically is probably one of the largest disruptors we've seen to our school system in, in, um, in our lifetime, really. And we're wondering what were your observations about that aspect of, of this moment, that, that distance learning, especially in the context of, of the middle school students and teachers that you work with, um, what were your observations of, of how that went and um, what we need to be thinking about in terms of distance learning um, going forward? Um, I, I know there's not normally cursing on all of the above, but what I've been describing our distance learning experience, it was a total SHIT show, right? Like we were not prepared at all, right? This was such an overnight experience in terms of how do we, wait, what school's closing? Wait, we're closing for two weeks. Okay, let's get kids packets so they have something to do. Oh, wait, now we're not opening again. Okay, well, let's get kids devices. Wait, but they don't have Wi-Fi. Wait, but oh, now let's get them a hotspot. But the hotspot doesn't work, right? So it's it was a total shit show. Please beat, bleep me if you need to. Um, and I think that was like, you know, that was, and that is not at the fault necessarily of, of the teachers or the educators. No, we were not prepared for this. And so for me, it's really just thinking like, it took me even as a literacy coach weeks to figure out how do I support my teachers remotely? I think probably a good five weeks before I was like, okay, I think, we, I think we've got a handle on this because we were in like shock mode and then we went to like panic mode and then we were like in action mode. It was just reactionary, right? And so, um, so it, it's, it's been difficult, right? And we were not prepared for it. But I think like one of my takeaways from it in terms of this is, um, well, I have a lot, but one being that we, we really, it goes back to what I just shared, but like we have to do things that uh, actually apply and bring, um, give kids, you know, reason to want to learn. Because when you're in the school building, you know, you have grades over your head and you have a teacher right there, like as your impetus for learning. But when you're remote and I don't know how, you know, in other parts of the country in Los Angeles, when kids left school on March 13th, whatever grade they had on March 13th was the grade that they couldn't get anything lower than that, which was, I was totally fine with, because like I said, it was an SHIT show. But, uh, when you're a savvy middle schooler and you're like, Oh, I had a B in English. I don't have to do anything in English for the next eight weeks teachers and grades are no longer your impetus for learning. Like there has to be a reason that you want to learn. Right. And so that takes me back. We had, we had an eighth grader after, you know, the killing of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and um, George Floyd, we were, we were doing a, a unit around music and the power of music, a mini unit. And he wrote a really powerful message to his teacher that she shared with me around no disrespect, but why am I learning about music? when I should be learning about what's happening in the streets right now and how I can support, you know, my black and brown brothers and sisters uh, to end police brutality. And he was right on, right? And so we made changes and adjustments to our, to our lessons and our learning for that. But I'm, I'm so grateful he spoke out because I think a lot of teachers have felt scared or nervous to do things that are not in the curriculum or people have this weird thinking that, Oh, if I'm teaching 
something by an author of color or something about systemic oppression and racism, it's not going to connect to the standards, which is total BS, right? So how that's been, I think, in terms of distance learning, it has to be relevant. It has to apply to kids' lives and they have to find purpose because if they don't, they're not, they are going to check out and we've lost a lot of kids. Like I have students where we just had our graduation yesterday and seeing all of their pictures on the screen, I was like, oh, wow, I, I haven't heard about that kid in, in months, you know, because maybe they haven't been logging in or they haven't been connected. So for me, that is like the biggest takeaway and my personal fire as I go into the next school year, like as a literacy coach and as someone who is supporting my teachers with this guaranteed and viable curriculum, we're going to have to shift that curriculum, right? We're going to have to ensure that what kids are learning, actually they care about it because if they don't care, they are not showing up. And in this environment where I may not need to physically be in school, it's much easier for me to not show up. Yeah, um, so glad you said that, Genevieve, and it certainly resonates with me and my, you know, core beliefs about what it means to be an educator. Um, and uh, you know, that question that you're alluding to, like, what is school going to look like uh, in the fall, uh, is a big one. And of course, we're we're still in waiting in terms of you know the the actual answer to that. But I'm wondering if you could share your thoughts uh, from your experience as an educator, as a literacy coach, about what school should look like uh, when we return and what kind of planning we need to start doing now in order to actually make that a reality. Yeah, um, well, I just wanna be back in the same space as kids and teachers. So I am hopeful that we are able to return, even if it's with smaller numbers of people together at once, but there is, there is real power in being physically together. And so without, with all safety precautions and, and protecting kids and protecting educators and protecting families, health, physically health-wise, like I'm hopeful that we can be physically together in some capacity. And once we like, so we need to take care of our physical health, right? And I think when we come back, we also really need to take care of our social and emotional health. And especially, I mean, this is, I think, applicable to kids of all ages, but especially in middle school, right? And so, so much of middle school is around the social connections that you have with your peers. And that has just been wiped away uh, during this time. So for me, I really see, uh, my vision is that there is a good chunk of time together where students are in circle, in advisory settings, small groups with a like trained adult educator to really process and connect with each other on what is coming up for you being back in school. What have the last six months of your life been like? Because we really haven't been together that long. Really giving a space for kids to process what's happening in the world around them and within them and in a safe space. So I feel like that's huge and needs to be, it's not like an afterthought. It's like, no, this is vital to our kids actually being able to learn. So I think there needs to be some real support for educators over the summer on how do you hold space for students, like whether you're using an advisory model or crew model to really connect with kids and allow kids to connect with each other. And then the second piece is, like it's my it's my recurring uh, theme throughout this conversation, right? That kids really need to be the drivers of their learning. So when we do come back, is there space? Not is there? How do we create space for kids to to decide and drive and design their learning? Like 
what, what in this time and this like very powerful period of change in so many ways, how do we cultivate that fire and that energy and continue that learning so that kids are the ones who are saying, Hey, I really want to dive deeply into, uh, you know, why, uh, the Watts uprising happened in the sixties. Like I teach them Watts. Have we talked about the Watts, Watts uprising with any of our curriculum in the time that I've been at my school? We have not. Right. But why don't we look at that as if a kid wanted to, as a way to connect to what we're learning and connect to what's happening now and what can we learn from the past? So I really see like there has to be a shift in what school looks like and in the purpose of school, right? Like, that, that students, if we really want to pull them back in because we've lost them, we have to make sure that they have a say in what they are learning and what they are doing. And, and I, I really see, um, you know, I've noticed after that student made the comment uh, in the English class, like our principal started listening sessions with students, which I got to participate in the first one. And that was really nice to hear from a few kids like what it's been like for them but that needs to be ongoing and that needs to be normalized and that needs to be the expectation and not the exception um and so i think there needs to be support for educators also over the summer around how do i ensure that i'm not reducing my standards and like i'm still holding my kids to high expectations because i believe in them and what they're what what's what they're possible what's possible for them and how do I know that I don't have to just teach exactly as this curriculum tells me to teach? Like I have to be responsive to where my kids are and, and what they want and, and what's going to be of most value to them. So I'm hopeful that, you know, we can, we can do some work with educators over the summer around preparing them to not only hold space for kids, but also to, you know, know what, how learning can look different. And then, sorry, the last thing I'll say is, <clears throat> we as educators absolutely need to be doing our own work and we need to be holding space for educators around how do I do work to be actively anti-racist. And, you know, we've seen the videos of like the teacher in Bakersfield yelling at a, a mom and her daughter uh, who were, you know, who, who were at a Black Lives Matter protest and saying, I will kill you. Um, to a, And she's a second grade teacher, right? So that woman should not be teaching but also how do we ensure that those of us who are still here are really actively working to check our own biases and dismantle systems of uh, racism and oppression. Yeah. Well, Genevieve, uh, brilliant, powerful, passionate thoughts as always. And uh, Jeff, did thank you, Jeff, though, did, did you know that, that she curses like a sailor? Did you know she had that potty mouth on her? <laughs> I know. I now know she spells curses like a sailor. That's, <laughs> that's what I know. I do uh, curse a lot, you guys. I just I'm a professional. I'm to be a professional. Uh, but BF, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, your your perspective, your experience, your wisdom is always welcome here on the show, and it's great to have you as our senior middle school correspondent. So thanks for joining us on our fiftieth episode. Thank you so much. And I just want to say congratulations to you too. I think it's so dope that there are two black male educators holding it down on all of the above and congratulations on 50 episodes. It's, it's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. 
All right, folks, our next guest in this seminar looking at the current state of affairs in education and where we go from here is Siobhan Taylor. Now, Siobhan Taylor, super, super, super dope trauma educator, uh, community outreach coordinator, just all around powerful voice for the community, particularly for our black youth in the community. Now, we will link below this episode, the previous episode that she was on, but Siobhan, we just wanna welcome you back to all the above, and we thank you for stopping by one more time with us. Thank you for having me on again, I appreciate it, and congrats on your 50th episode. Thank you, thank you. Thank so you. Um, last time you were on, we were talking about trauma and you shared a lot of expertise about the ways that trauma impacts the teaching and learning um, that happens in our schools. And you dropped a ton of knowledge about what educators should be mindful of when it comes to trauma. And of course, since then we've experienced a global pandemic and we are in the midst of a, a social uprising throughout the nation in response to the murders of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George George Floyd. So now students and, and educators alike are experiencing different different levels and different angles of, of this community type of trauma. And we're wondering if you could share with us a little bit about what you think this moment in education really means. It's interesting because um, I think having the pandemic hit along with the protests, it kind of put a lot of different conversations on the table. One, I've noticed you're seeing a lot more, especially black families saying, hey, I like educating my child at home. I've actually, in fact, on my Facebook page, I said something about it and there were parents who said, yeah, I actually like teaching my child at home. In fact, I think my child is doing better with me teaching them at home. And having that option because they're working from home has been helpful for them. And so with that conversation, and then we start looking at systems in America and how they've been oppressive to black people, that conversation is not absent of the, the education system. So yeah, we're talking about police brutality, but they're also talking about defunding the police. So I don't think a conversation around even divesting from the public school system is off the table either. And I think these conversations are coming up a, a lot more because we're seeing things in a lot different light, especially when things are supposed to be different and they don't seem like they're different. That's that's a powerful thought there, Siobhan. And as you know, as a public school system educator, it, uh, it it is both sobering to hear that, and also you know, as as someone who prides myself on being a critic of the status quo, I also understand where you're coming from, right? And and really calls uh, for us to do better and do right by the community are um, are coming from every city, every state across the country where we're seeing, you know, mass uprisings and calls for more radical, radical change. So perhaps in addition to what you said, are there, you know, are there other examples of more radical change that we need to be thinking about in order to make, uh, you know, education and schooling something that is uh, in service of communities and, and that is functioning as an anti-racist institution? Yeah, I think that's a tall order to make an inherently racist institution anti-racist. But I think we do have to begin to look at ways that we can reimagine education in the educational system. 
And I think, and I think this is a great opportunity to do that. The same way people are looking at different systems and defunding the police and how, how can we now care for our communities and keep our communities safe if we're talking about completely revamping a system and an institution we've known for hundreds of years, we can do the same thing in education. In fact, we should be. And how do we begin to reimagine that? What does that look like now? For one, the classroom setup. Where does that concept even come from? Is that is that in itself a Eurocentric idea that has not benefited communities of color? Is the way the curriculum that's being taught and the way it's being taught, people telling you, you know, learning about the Greeks and the Romans or telling you that world history is only Europe and some parts of Asia, right? So we have to be revamping the entire way that we're educating our, ourselves and our communities and our people, right? We have to actually think about these things. We don't often consider them because we just think, oh, well, as long as I teach and I, you know, some of the black history stuff that's not commonly taught, or I introduce a couple of books like Things Fall Apart and the autobiography of Malcolm X, and I've done my part. But we have to really, and, and educators being a part of the process of revamping the curriculum, because a lot of times it's not actual teachers. They're politicians, they're business people who are in these conversations around revamping curriculum. And we need to have more and more uh, teachers of color, more psychologists of color that are thinking about how we can completely reimagine and completely look at how we educate, how we treat children. When they come, when they come back home, I mean, come back to school from, these, from this pandemic, remember, they just had their entire lives disrupted. We have to keep that in mind and we try to bring them back into that system. So if we're talking about being anti-racist, we, that means we have to completely rethink how we educate. And we need to re-educate ourselves, check ourselves on our own biases, check ourselves on our own pain. Because remember, sometimes, and I've heard this multiple times, I'm sure you have, people have said the hardest people on them were the Black teachers. Because the Black teacher had their own trauma and was like, no, you have to work harder than everybody else, therefore traumatizing that student. So being able to check our own trauma and our own pain as people of color going into the school system. So there's a lot we have to do to be anti-racist. Are we anti-racist? That's a, that's a key question. A lot of teachers, especially white teachers, are going to have, have to ask themselves. Just because you're liberal doesn't make you anti-racist. So what have you actually learned and studied during this time? Not just clapped every time somebody said Black Lives Matter. Dope. And actually, that a lot of what you said there reminds me of the one-on-one -on -one conversation that we had, which we'll also throw a link to under this video. And one thing that you said in that conversation, I, I asked you, I don't know if you remember, but I asked you, you know, if you were in charge of, of the whole system for a day, what's one of the first things you would do? And you said we would have to change the racist names of so many of these schools. And you you mentioned different schools named after uh, white supremacists, named after just, just brutal, brutal people. And it's funny that, you know, I, I mean, I think of that now because when you turn on the news, you see these Confederate monuments being toppled. And there are a few calls in uh, certain universities to change the names of certain buildings. And I'm kind of wondering when that conversation is going to finally get to our public school systems, because there are many schools around Los Angeles named after really brutal white supremacists. Named after the people that created laws to oppress their own people. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I've actually been really happy to see that the light bulbs have been going off and like around education, but also what do these statues mean? They're not just people. And the, the argument I've seen to say, like, we shouldn't take them down because we're doomed to repeat history if we don't. The thing, the thing is, those statues weren't part of history. They were created and erected to honor people. They were not, that's not like the actual site where this dangerous thing or bad, terrible, harmful thing happened. You're setting, you're saying as society, we hold this person up as honorable and respectful and who we strive to be like. 
So that needs to be taken down. And I've, I've, I've always been a, that's always been really important to me because we don't think about how even those small ways we have been conditioned to be desensitized to white supremacy. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, and I was wondering, you know, on, on, on the note that you, you mentioned earlier about um, the need for, for healing and the need for really thinking about our own trauma as educators, um, but also just the, the fact that we're coming out of this global pandemic. When those students show back up to our, to our school, um, what are some things that you think educators should be mindful of in regards to the trauma experienced as a result of the pandemic and the, the, the murders of, of, of these unarmed black folks? Well, for one, I always say, and this is something I've actually been working on myself. Number one, don't walk in with the hero complex. You're not, it's not like, oh, well, I'm now I'm the teacher who's back to saving lives. A lot of us who are in these fields of working with kids, we tend to be like codependents. <laughs> We're very much like we have to try to help everybody. Let's not start there. Start off with helping ourselves. I'm always saying we're going to start with ourselves first. If it doesn't move through you, it doesn't work. Give yourself some empathy because you've been at home. You've been trying to educate and readjust your life too. You have kids. You have things going on, right? You have to now transition your life back to what it was before after you just revamped it a month ago. So we definitely have to give ourselves some empathy. So that's the first step. And then go in with the clear head because now you can actually empathize with the kids. Yeah, this transition is tough. I'm right there with you. And remember, some of these kids weren't necessarily at home in healthy homes. Not, you know, and that's not to blame parents. There's all kinds of things go on in homes. So now they, but they had to try to figure out how they were going to eat. I'm grateful there have been school programs where people can go at least make sure their kids get breakfast and lunch, you know, but we have to remember some of these kids still were struggling at home. So keeping that in mind, this is a transition for all of us. And some of us had, you know, it's been hard to hit us harder than others, but look at yourself as among the students versus I'm here to now save them. And I think that's an important aspect. It has to move through you because then you can connect with your students. You're like, man, I know that's tough because, you know, I can relate to that. You don't have to tell them you relate to it, but just connect to it in your own spirit. Just say, you know, I feel that. I know what it's like to feel alone, to feel scared, to not know what's going to happen the next day. Because the day before you were able to go to the store, the next day you can't go because you don't have a mask. The day after that, it's a curfew. You got to be in the house by six o'clock. You can't stay at your cousin's house. Like recently I was reunited with my baby brother who's 14 and we had to cut two of our visits short in a row because all of a sudden we got alerts. I had to drive him back to Norwalk when we were at my other brother's house in North Hollywood. And it was the time I had with my brother who I hadn't seen in six and a half years. So imagine how even he at 14 felt like I'm finally with my brothers and sisters and that's cut off short. Now he has to go back to school when it's time to go back to school. Does that make sense? So we have to think about that as educators, as people working with children and families, that this has been quite a tough transition. And you're not the hero. You're here among them. You're here to connect and empathize. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that, Siobhan, because um, you were making me think of where I was when we got the alerts where it was like, you know, curfew at eight. Now curfew's at six. Now the curfew's at five. Right. And I was at the grocery store and I remember just being like all up in my own feelings about, you know, now we're getting yelled at to get out the grocery store and get home. Right. Which, you know, of course, was legit for me in the, in the moment. But, uh, you know, the the pivot one needs to make sometimes as an educator to see 
the, the world and the equation from the perspective of the students, right? And maybe my experience of being at the grocery store as logistically upsetting as that was in that moment is not the only experience that's happening right now. And I need to really understand what these, you know, what these really disruptive things are meaning for kids in their lives and their families and their experiences. So as always, uh, Siobhan, you, you help us, um, see the world from an important perspective and, and bring to life issues that are, that are challenging and critical about education and about school and, and the fact that we need to do better. And uh, so thank you, Siobhan, for, for bringing that to us yet again here on All the Above. And it's, it's just been a pleasure to, to have you back with us. Thank you. All right, folks, now we are here with our third and final guest for this special 50th episode of All the Above. And if you've been with us since the beginning, literally the very first episode of All the Above, you'll recognize this guest. Although, you know, she's not the the young student intern anymore. She's she's a vet. She's just finished her second year in the classroom. We have Miss uh, Alyssa Solis, who is a sixth grade science teacher. Alyssa, welcome back to All the Above. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> and, you know, we, we really, really love that you're here for this 50th episode because that very first episode feels like it was so long ago. And for our viewers, those who are, are new to our show, if you go back to that first episode, which we recommend you do, um, you'll notice that the the audio visual quality we've we've come quite a long way since that that first episode. Our, our student helpers were were holding the cameras, and there was a lot of camera movement, all, all kinds of craziness. But the conversation was dope. We were actually talking about teaching in in the Trump era, and um, basically the the whole notion or concept about teachers being political or not. So great episode. Definitely go back and check that out. But Alyssa, you were a student intern at that time. It's been it's been a ride since then. You've experienced um, massive teacher strike, a global pandemic, a social uprising, and of course, just the the day to day craziness of of this era and of trying to learn how to be an effective classroom teacher in those first two years. We're wondering if you could go back to the student intern version of yourself and um, talk to her a little bit about what to expect as a teacher. What would you tell her? Well, it sounds like a lot when you put it that way, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, man, um, I so I just watched that episode right before this, and you're so right. Like this show has come a long way. You guys have these nice transitions now. You have these cool screens, but like, like you said, the conversation itself. I was like, I'm really glad I was there for this conversation. I needed to have that conversation, like right then, in my life, and um. In retrospect, as a student teacher, I was worried a lot about things that ultimately didn't matter. Um, like, for example, you see a lot of posts from people who are like leaving the profession for various reasons, from like lack of fulfillment and stuff like that. So I was very preoccupied with this idea of like, oh, I'm excited about teaching now, but I'm gonna not be excited about it in like 10 years. And I just, I feel like that's just absolutely not the case. I've met so many teachers who have been teaching for a long time who are very passionate about it still and like very excited about the job. So I think I let maybe the media get to me and maybe too many like internet posts get to me. 
And I just like, I wish I could tell myself it's okay to be excited. Like you're not stupid or naive to be excited about teaching. And I like still feel that way a whole two years later. I feel that way. Nice. That's great to hear. Actually. That's great to hear. It is. It is. I mean, you know, Especially, I think, because your tenure as a teacher has, as Manuel noted, been marked by arguably the craziest like two to three year window in the history of our of our profession. Right. So you came in on the heels of, you know, just the the shock and and dismay of the election of of Trump. You have experienced, uh, you know, a pretty lengthy strike here in L.A. And then, of course, global pandemic. And now, you know, the the largest political uprising around racial justice that we've seen in at least a half century, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, all of that it, it comes into the classroom, right? And impacts yeah. the, the experience of teachers and kids. And so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, and I think especially as someone who is a teacher of science, um, you know, maybe a content area that folks don't immediately think of when they think about, you know, how you bring current events into the curriculum. Uh, but how has it, it, how has this context impacted you and your experience as a teacher? Um, so everyone says your first two years are going to be bananas. So it's hard to perceive what it would be like, not like this. What's it gonna, what's it gonna feel like just being normal? Um, but I think, well, I just watched a documentary last night about the 1992 uprisings after the Rodney King, um, acquittal, and it felt so relevant and it felt like the feelings I was feeling feel exactly the same like they do now so I was like is this unprecedented um or am I just finally like old enough to be aware of our place in history and um histor- the historical context of all this so I think we do have a responsibility to include that stuff in the classroom that's what I said on our very first episode way back when and I still believe it and science uh is an incredibly rich Uh, content area to include that stuff. So sure, we don't necessarily talk about racism, but we do talk about neuroscience. We do talk about, um, you know, the the mechanisms of your eyes seeing something and then how they interpret it, which leads to your behavior and your reactions. And if that's not the heart of, you know, racist beliefs, like that's, that's the perfect time to teach students that prejudices can be informed by things subconscious. So there's a lot of intersections. And um, I think it's forced me to have to really reconcile that like you can't not be deeply invested in students like social emotional well-being. Because I always thought, oh, there's the teachers that are really like loving and nurturing and motherly. And I'm not one of those teachers. But you don't have to be loving and nurturing and mothering to check in and make students aware that you really genuinely care about how they're feeling. Because if they're not into it, it's, your class might as well not happen or exist. If they don't feel like you care about them, you might as well just be talking to a wall. So I definitely have seen uh, significant improvements once I've made a conscious level to consistently check in with students and not just assume that they know that I care about them. That's dope. And I'm sure like most teachers out there, the sudden shift to distance learning 
has has definitely gotten in the way of that that progression of of this idea of building these connections and relationships with students. Um, we're wondering mm-hmm. if you could talk to us a little bit about what your distance learning experience was and um, what are some of your key takeaways from from that experience? Oh, so I was lucky my uh, master's program made us take a bunch of classes in online teaching. We didn't really have a choice. And at the time I was kind of bitter about it. Yeah, it was like an added little credential thing. And at the time I was I was bitter because I was like, oh, I've grown up with the Internet. I know how to teach online. You just teach, but do it online. Why am why am I paying money to to take classes in it? But I was so wrong. It's not. It's I'm, and I'm so glad now that I took those classes because it made life so much easier right now. Um, my experience was that 60% of my students were very successful in online learning, and I'm very deeply proud of that. I'd say another 20% struggled, but they did it, and I can I can confidently say they learned stuff and that they interacted with their peers online, even though they weren't able to. So I'm also proud of that. And there was another 20% of the students who I could not get a hold of them. I didn't see anything from them. I worried about them every day for like the last three months. So that's that's the 20% that I'm concerned about. Yeah. I think certainly a lot of folks out there, I think, can can empathize with that that yeah. concern, right? And just sort of the vanishing of a whole slice of, yeah. uh, of the students who we've been used to spending so much time with. Um, but of course, you know, eventually we will return to physical school in some capacity. And I'm wondering if you can share with us uh, as, our, as our final question, some of your thinking about, you know, when we do return to school, what, what should that look like? And, and what, you know, maybe uh, preparation, support, training, do teachers like yourself need in order to, to actually, uh, you know, be ready for that return to school? I've only been teaching two years. I don't know. <laughs> um, no, and I, I'm on a uh, like a mailing list for teachers, and one of the advice I was given was like, don't think about next year for like at least three weeks because we're all still figuring it out. But um, I think one big takeaway that I would have to say my personal recommendation because it seems like what I'm hearing from people is that we are going to still be distance learning back in the fall, um, and I don't I honestly don't know well enough to know if that's a good idea or not. I defer to the experts on this, but um, what I have noticed in the last three months and an idea that's being kicked around our school is to focus more on synchronous learning, which for people who don't know synchronous is um, you all log in at a specific time. You all go to like a Zoom and the teacher gives direct instruction as opposed to asynchronous, which is where students can log in and do work on their own time. And I don't know why there's been this pressure for teachers to do a lot of synchronous class time. Okay, kids, we all go to this link at this time and I teach you. Um, And maybe it's like a social media pressure because the teachers that have really amazing, creative, synchronous lessons with their students are getting a lot of social media coverage and then they're on the news and stuff. But I just think synchronous sessions, um, it's, it's privileged against the kids who don't happen to have that internet bandwidth to be like streaming a live meeting. Or like you said in your article, Dr. Rustin, about give them all A's, like 
they might have other things going on. Like they should be able to do school on their own time, especially if they're, if we are still at home and they're having to do family care and stuff. So, um, you know, and some other teacher was saying, Hey, Miss Elise, we're thinking about making your classroom like a filming studio and teachers can come in and film lessons. And then we can have them put up on, you can help them put them up, up online. And I'm like, no, just use screencasting, record it and put it online for kids to access when they can. So um, I would say that, like, let's focus less on these um, amazing live sessions that don't work for everyone and put stuff up online that kids can access when, when they're ready to learn. Yeah. Um, actually, now that you mentioned that, I'm actually thinking about as far as the synchronous teaching, I'm wondering how much of that is just this idea, this traditional notion of education being about a teacher lecturing and students listening. Mm -hmm. And without that synchronous model, I think for a lot of folks, there's this like dissonance, dissonance between like, wait, that's not education, that's not teaching. Yeah. You know, so I think I wonder how much of it is embedded in people's archaic notions about what good teaching supposedly looks like. Mm -hmm. um, also just them like oh. the idea that if you have a synchronous session somehow that's social students are not interacting with each other necessarily on these I, not in all cases and i think there's ways to create social interaction with students asynchronously so i think that's another thing is people think let's all come together as a class but if it's just you as a teacher lecturing that's still not providing any social emotional connection for them yeah exactly so I know you're 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 fronting like you don't have all the answers, but you're you're speaking like a true vet who who does have a wealth of knowledge, and we are so glad that you came on our show to to share some of that because I mean we're all we're all learning together, we're all trying to figure this out together, and um, I believe Jeff would agree with me in saying that the the youth will lead the way, and in this case, in the realm sure. of teaching, you are the youth leading the way, and we very much appreciate that. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. All right, folks. Next up is our class dismissed, where we like to give shout outs to folks doing excellent things in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for class dismissed, part of our show where we like to give shout outs to folks doing wonderful things in education. And this, of course, is episode 50, which means we've done 50 class dismissed. So we've shouted out a lot of good folks doing a lot of good work in education. Again, dig through those crates and, um, you know, check up on what we've we've covered in the past. But Jeff, what do we have for today's class dismissed? Yeah, man. Well, well, you know, it would only be fitting that on our 50th episode where we have had on three incredible guests who we've had on previously on our show who really just bring, you know, amazing wisdom, knowledge, expertise to our conversation, that we would end the show with one of those folks. And mm. so what we have today is something, it's been out there on Twitter. Some folks, I think, may have seen it, but uh, just, a, just a brilliant capturing of the passion and love that educators bring to the, bring to the table brought to you by none other than our senior middle school correspondent, Miss Genevieve DuBose, who is also a literacy coach uh, down in Watts at uh, Edwin Markham Middle School. And she got the call to make 
something powerful for the students. And she, you know, she hit a home run. What can I say? So we have here uh, 20 words of wisdom for the class of 2020. So we're gonna play out our episode here with Genevieve's brilliant words. But of course, make sure you find all of our content on our website, aotashow.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter at aotashow. And of course, if you're a listener, you can find all of our content on our podcast. We are on Apple Podcasts and we are on uh, Spotify. Enjoy. Congratulations, Edwin Markham Eagles. It's your graduation. 20 for 2020, 20 reminders, 20 words of wisdom. 20 for 2020, 20 reminders, 20 words of wisdom. I've been invited here today to share some words of wisdom and send you on your way. You're graduating from Edwin Markham Middle School. You've left your mark and the world is now yours to rule. This is a very sacred time. Our country is looking at you to redesign and dismantle the systems that oppress us. Your voice and your actions are priceless. So let's seize the moment for ourselves and the ones who cannot join us. The George Floyds, Ahmaud's and Breonna's. With our actions, they're the ones we'll honor. So I'm here to humbly offer you some guidance and reminders to help you through high school, college and beyond. 20 words of wisdom, I hope you'll carry on. Hey, 20 for 2020, 20 reminders, 20 words of wisdom. 20 for 2020, 20 reminders, 20 words of wisdom. 20 for 2020, 20 reminders, 20 words of wisdom just for you. 20 for 2020, here we go. Number one. Always speak your truth, even when your voice shakes. Be honest, be you, too. Ask for help when you need it. Doing everything by yourself is underrated. Three, join or start a club. Following your passions brings light and love. Four, take deep breaths when you're mad or when you're bothered or want to relax. Five, read every day. Words can ground you or help you escape. Six, write every day. Your voice matters and you've got tons to say. Seven, connect your world to what you're learning. When you can link it, it ensures your brain is working. Eight, find a mentor you can trust. Someone to show you the ropes is a must. Hey, 20 for 2020, 20 reminders, 20 words of wisdom. 20 for 2020, 20 reminders, 20 words of wisdom. Yeah, 20 for 2020, 20 reminders, 20 words of wisdom. Here we go, we're proud of you, Eagles. More words of wisdom. Number nine, volunteer in your community. When you're of service, happiness is a guarantee. 10, find friends who push you to be your best. You'll be inspired and always progress. 11, know your history and from where you come. Stand strong in your roots looking towards the sun. 12, organize when something's wrong. Gather your people, make the community strong. 13, Be anti-racist, it's constant work and we can't be complacent. 14, reflect on the daily, what's worth keeping and what's worth changing. 15, remember that you're powerful, your strength and your force is undeniable. 16, look to your elders, listen clearly to hear what they tell you. 17, show what's love every day, it's our community and we came to slay. 18, Always come and visit to share your strengths and struggles. We're here for it. 19, be the change you wish to see. You are the light, so shine brightly. 20, know that you're never alone. Edwin Markham will always be your home. Yeah, 
20 for 2020, 20 reminders, 20 words of wisdom for you graduates for 2020, 20 reminders, 20 words of wisdom. We are so proud of you Eagles. Keep soaring, keep making yourself, your families and the Watts community proud. Congratulations class of 2020. 20 reminders, 20 words of wisdom. 20 for 2020 written just for you.